This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, where Dan Spader of Sun Life led a track called Transforming the Culture of Youth Ministry. Here's today's track session from Sun Life. I recognize a lot of familiar faces in here, many of you who have been with us maybe for now all five sessions of this track, so awesome. Uh, Anyone, this is the first track that you've joined us for, alright, so so there are are a few of you, and and for those of you who raised your hand, this is your first track, um, had you had previous exposure to Sun Life and Sun Life's disciple-making training, or is this, this is your first taste? All right, so first taste. All right, um, so conversation that uh, we want to have together up here and invite you in, uh, really focusing on um, uh, what are some of those challenges that we face in implementing a disciple-making culture in our ministry, in our, in our churches, in our youth ministries. Um, now, uh, disciple-making <coughs> culture is, as we would look at that from some life's perspective, our training um, is based on a careful study, chronological study of the life of Christ. And looking at his three, four years of public ministry, what did he do year one? year two, year three, year four, in investing in his disciples to create a movement of disciple-making that would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, a movement that would change the world. And uh, so looking at Christ and what he did. Uh, I think it's providential. There are four of us. Uh, So we've got Dan Spader. Dan's the founder of Sun Life. 40 years ago, almost now, wow. when he was only eight. That's right. <laughs> Two. And, uh, Two. you know, Dan has been privileged over the last number of years to provide leadership for what we call the Global Youth Initiative, which is, along with Sun Life, our global partners who are doing this disciple-making training for leaders in over 100 countries around the globe. And uh, so exciting to see how God is multiplying that movement. Um, then we also got uh, Joel Zabrowski, and uh, Joel did the, the previous session, for those of you who are in here with us, and Joel's our um, Director of Leadership Development, and uh, so we've got r- regional leadership across uh, North America. Uh, Joel is uh, training, coaching, investing in those leaders. Um, and then we also have Calvin Russell. Calvin is our national director for Canada, longtime friend up in Toronto. And uh, you hear a lot of encouragement there, Canada. <laughs> so, and uh, also deeply passionate about uh, ministry in an urban context and living there in probably definitely the most diverse city in North America. Um, so, how many nationalities represented in Toronto? 180 or something, 185. So, incredible. Nations represented. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Um, but when we look at, at that um, process for Jesus creating a movement, we'll, we'll, we use three B words within our, our training pathway for, for leaders. Um, it begins with B. Be a disciple maker. Um, so many of us want to skip past that and jump right to build. We want to build a disciple-making ministry. We want a ministry that makes disciples. Um, but we're not seeing that really happen. And part of it is we've skipped the first step where we have to actually be disciple-makers ourselves. We have to be living that, modeling that, owning that for others. So be a disciple-maker then build a disciple-making ministry, and then begin a disciple-making movement where it goes beyond our ministry, and, um, you know, it's multiplying. It's being sent out. And uh, looking carefully at the life of Christ and how he did that. Uh, For those of you who it's your first time in here, just by way of quick review, at Providential I said that there's four chairs up here, Um, talk about that disciple-making process that Jesus walked through with his disciples. Um, uh, We use four chairs as a word picture for that. And Dan, who authored the book, Four Chair Discipling, why don't you just quickly give us a snapshot of those four chairs. Well, it's written in uh, Chronological Study of Christ. Um, Early in his ministry, within the first week, he says, come and see or follow me. Uh, or come and see, excuse me, in John 1, he said that to some initial disciples of John the Baptist. Come and see. It literally means just show up. That's a seeker chair. Then he said, follow me. Philip went to Nathaniel, Samaritan woman. Follow me, which is a different word. The Greek word, akalatheo, it literally means to line up behind, become my disciple, learn of me. And then 18 months into his ministry, he, after spending 18 months of building relationships with a group, he identified five that popped out of that, surfaced like the cream of the crop that began to rise because they were faithful, available, teachable, and responsive to him. Uh, he went to them and said, follow me, I'll teach you to reproduce. Thank you, fishers of men. That was chair three. His priorities changed. His teaching began to train. His experience with them began to change. From this point on, you find him 17 times of the crowds, 46 times of the few. And then later on, he says, literally, go and die, or go and bear fruit, John 15. And he said, now get out of here. It literally means leave, go, get out of the nest, leave, and go reproduce in others what I reproduced in you. So it's just a metaphor of the disciple-making pathway, rooted in the life of Christ chronologically. So chair one, you have the <coughs> seeker or the spiritually lost person. They put their faith in Christ, move into chair two, the chair of a and believer. And that is Joel. Y'all, <clears throat> perfect. We'll put a cross <laughs> right here. <laughs> a believer who needs to uh, be rooted and established and grow up in their faith. We don't get want people to get stuck there. Moving into chair three, the chair of the worker. The harvest is great, but the workers are few, and so equipping them as workers, uh, but not the kind of workers that we typically, you know, are looking for in youth ministry or in the church because we make those announcements we need more workers and what are we looking for you know nursery workers you know ushers and greeters you know uh 
you know, flip burgers at the, you know, the, the, the church barbecue or stack chairs for this event. And all of that is, you know, important ministry service that needs to happen. But Jesus, when he said workers, he's talking about the harvest. So harvest workers. And so chair three engaged in reaching those who are in chair one. So they need to be trained and equipped to do that. And then when that person moves from chair one to chair two, coming alongside and helping them to continue to learn what it means to follow Jesus. Um, so being a model for them. This is what it looks like in my life. This is what it can look like <coughs> in your life to be a follower of Christ. So the worker and then finally the disciple maker. How do you know when you're sitting in chair four as a disciple maker? I tell people, well, just look over your shoulder. And can you see that there is someone who you invested in who was in chair one, they didn't know Jesus, and they put their faith in Christ, and you continue to walk with them and help them to see what it meant to follow Jesus, and you help to equip them to reach those who are in chair one and chair two, and they've begun to do that, and you can look over your shoulder and you see someone who's sitting in chair three, and they're beginning to do that work of disciple-making, and when you can see that, you know that you are... Make, how do you know when you're a disciple maker? When you're making a disciple. And so, um, uh, Luke 6.40, Jesus said, a disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at that, and it's, it's not just knowing what the teacher knows, or doing what the teacher does, but um, that teacher made a disciple of you. If you're going to be like them, that means <clears throat> that you have to make a disciple of others. Built right into the DNA of being a disciple is that we make disciples. It's an oxymoron that we have non-reproducing disciples. It's what disciples do. They reproduce their lives in others. So what does it look like for us then to um, implement this kind of a disciple-making culture in our church. I think, you know, all of us, we come here, maybe you've been to, you know, some of these <clears throat> different breakouts, different ministries, disciple-making organizations that are represented here. And we come because we're hungry for seeing this happen in our youth ministry, in our church. We want, we want disciple-making to happen. <coughs> and I'll just use and, this. And do you mind if I just paint a picture here sure. while you're talking? What do we long to see? Let me just try to paint a picture. What we're longing to see is students reaching other students, peer-to-peer ministry, and then their friends reaching other friends, and all of a sudden you have a movement of multiplying disciples, and you say, how in the world do I control this mouse? Because it's just multiplying. It's not growing, it's multiplying. And, and is that possible in student ministry? Absolutely. Is it rare? Yes. But is it possible? We have seen it again and again and again. It's a student-led, <coughs> peer-to-peer movement, overseen by leadership, but a multiplication, not just deeper Bible studies. Yeah. And Calvin, you've, you've seen <clears throat> that kind of fruit, that kind of movement with <clears throat> ministry up in Toronto, right? Yeah. I just tag-teaming off that, I just looking at my own son, and I, the godfather of youth ministry in Canada, John Wilkinson, a friend yeah. of yours, mm-hmm. talked about one of the greatest difficulties that he sees in the local church for youth pastors is that they're not, and pastors, are not discipling their own kids. And, and so 
the idea of seeing that fruit. So my son, and just tagging with that question, um, just passionate about sharing his faith and sharing the gospel with people. Like, you know, last night I went on his Twitter account, and it was just like a disciple who's making disciples. That's what he wrote. And so it's the, the excitement that I have is seeing my own kids. Uh, my wife said, I talked to her last night in Canada. She said, it's real cold up here. And I've been sent to my room because my other son's Bible study, he says, Dad, I'm discipling 12 young men. And uh, so she, they're usually in a different location, and there they are. So the excitement that I get, you know, we need to disciple our own families, right, our own kids. Um, but also really excited when I see young people capture that idea of what does it look like to shift from chair two to chair three to four and and they're sharing their faith they want to pour their lives into other people it's pretty exciting and, and it's really to see yeah so uh, just use this analogy um, that <clears throat> we want to see this happen all, all of these uh, different amazing ministries represented here breakouts um, uh, and all kinds of tools and things that we can walk away from here We've looked at resources, books, studies on the, the different tables downstairs, gone through the Lifeway bookstore, and picked up stuff, and we've got to do this, and we've got to do that. And, um, all of that's great, but it, in many ways, it can be like an app that you're trying to download and add to your ministry. Right? And... Um, uh, I'm sure, you know, those of us with smartphones, we can open them up, and there's, there's <clears throat> lots of apps on there, right? And some of them you use, and some of them you don't, and you look back and you're like, man, why is this app on, even on here? Um, what, what's the deal with this? And for us to look at disciple-making or discipleship, it's like maybe, maybe some of you came and it's like, well... Really, the area of weakness in our church, we're really weak in discipleship. So we're going to come to the disciple-making forum, and we're going to learn how to strengthen the discipleship piece. Because we've got some other things going on in the church, but this component over here, discipleship, um, we need to add that app. Or whatever app we've been using, we need to delete it and we need to add another app that's more effective, that's better for us to accomplish uh, discipleship in our, in our church. Um, and I would say this, if for your youth ministry, for your church, if discipleship is like an app, then you will never have a true disciple-making culture in your ministry. It can't just be an app. It has to be your operating system. Right? Um, uh, that's why within, uh, within Sun Life, and I know a lot of other ministries here, will use the word discipleship, and that's great. It's the, it's the word that we're most accustomed to. But we, we try and steer away from the word discipleship because what do we immediately think of when we think of discipleship? We think, yeah, curriculum. What kind, of, what kind of discipleship curriculum have you found that's really effective? You know, what's like the magic bullet curriculum that I can use to make disciples? 
Um, or we think of programs. Ah, oh, what's the, the structure of your programs for making disciples? That, or we think of classes. You know, well, 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 what kind of classes do you have to walk people through to make disciples? And the reality is, curriculum doesn't make disciples. Programs don't make disciples. Classes don't make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Now, a disciple can use a curriculum, a disciple can use a program, a disciple can use a class uh, as a tool to do that. But, uh, you know, looking at a curriculum or a program or a class, that's looking at, that's looking at discipleship as an app that we add. Um, you know, just continuing with the metaphor of app versus operating system. You know, there are, there are certain apps that, um, depending on what smartphone you have, the <coughs> app might not be optimized to necessarily work with the operating system of your device. In fact, there are apps that I have had on my tablet or my smartphone that... Uh, they were from a previous version of the operating system, and when I updated my operating system, the app no longer works because you know it's an old app. They didn't update it. They, you know, it's like okay, we did that before. We're not going to do that anymore. Uh, just think about that as it relates to our youth ministries, to our churches. Um, is the app and the operating system? designed to optimize that disciple-making culture within the church. Um, so Joel, I want to I throw this to you. Just what are, uh, within youth ministry, you've coached um, hundreds of youth pastors across the country uh, in implementing disciple-making uh, and a culture of disciple-making. Um, what, are, what are some of the challenges that that you've seen and wrestled through uh, with um, with men and women leading in youth ministry in terms of really seeing that implemented. Before you answer, can I ask a question? I'm the old guy here. What's an app? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, everybody comes with, um, everybody's been discipled. I remember on stage last night they were saying, you know, some people haven't been discipled, but everybody's been discipled into whatever, you know, form of church um, leadership or anything that they've, with the, that's been modeled for them, they've been into. So a lot of, um, in a church, if you come into a church and the adult ministry leaders in that church, whether it's your volunteers in ministry or uh, whatever their youth group was like growing up, that's, that's what they've been discipled into. That's their ministry DNA. Uh, that's their operating system. Um, then you've got whatever the previous youth pastor was at that ministry, however they led things, that was, they had that DNA or that operating system. And a lot of the challenge is um, infusing a new DNA with people. So it's almost like uh, doing a blood transfusion or... Um, and sometimes we talk about um, even having different languages. So when I say discipleship, that means something different to this person than to this person. So having that common language of, okay, let's talk about disciple-making. Because if we talk about the chairs, traditionally, 
discipleship is what we do with people in chair two who are believers. We help them grow, and we do discipleship by doing Bible studies or deeper things. That's what a lot of people think by discipleship. So just having that common language of, by disciple making, we mean taking lost people, helping them to become believers, helping them to grow and equip to become workers, and then to reproduce to become disciple makers. So having a common language, it just takes time to just um, to uh, to reinfuse that DNA. So having a common language, I think the other thing is modeling, just showing them what I mean. Because telling them what I mean can be one thing, but when they see it in you, and I'm, I'm one of these, I'm a, I'm a this personality, I'm a D, I'm driven, I want to get there. And that's where it just takes time. You think about Jesus' ministry and just a year and a half, year and three quarters to lay a foundation and just taking that time to patiently model and redefine and, and reinfuse a different DNA in a ministry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I think we underestimate how critical the alignment issue is. So whoever your leadership saw, your leadership is, leadership in church, leadership in the youth ministry, leadership in your student ministry, without that common language, that alignment, uh, when you say the word disciple, everybody's got five different answers with five different people. Uh, at this mega church where I've been working, I told them coming in there, it would take us at least two years just to agree on our language. The reality is it took four years. To, and everybody, when I say discipling, we're all on the same page. When we say discipling like Jesus, because we really dug into the life of Christ chronologically, now we could say, oh yeah, worker, we all understand what a worker does, what a worker looks like, how you identify a worker, what a worker does not do, what a worker needs to do next, because we're, we have alignment. Don't underestimate how critical it is to have top alignment before you try to do anything different. Second step we always say it then is assessment. Once you align, then you have to assess why are we doing what we're doing? Where does it fit in that disciple making DNA? And that assessment component, many people want to take this curriculum, jump to this program, try to implement something new without alignment first off. And um, I think that's what Jesus was doing the first 18 months, bringing his his initial disciples on the same page mentally to what it means to walk as he walked. They just had to see that. And so I don't think we can underestimate that. No, and you can't just say it once, but just beating that drum, you think about the Nehemiah principle, about every 30 days he had to recast that vision, keep that in front of everybody. So I remember um, I was a disciple-making pastor at my most recent church, and I just kept beating that drum, and I'd say, I know I'm beating this drum again. I'm not, and one of our old deacons, a guy, an 80-year-old farmer, says, you keep beating that drum, young fellow. You just keep beating that drum. And, and just, just reminding everybody this. And some of our elders were saying, discipleship-making. I'm like, that's not even a word, dude. This was, and just having to correct people as we go along. We made a list of actual words we want to use. Disciple-making, life of Christ. Tried to ban the word discipleship. We kind of wink at everybody whenever they said the word discipleship. Why? Because discipleship... To 90% of people in the church means deeper Bible study. So we said we ban that word because we're not called to go do discipleship. We're called to go make disciples. So it's little things like that, but language matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk phase two, we want everyone in the staff to know what we're talking about in the five phases of the life of Christ. We talk chair four. We want everybody to be able to say that. When we first taught the four chairs at, at Southgate, people began to teach it. Everybody began to teach it. 
and they, they messed it up so bad. Now that's okay. I mean, someone who taught it, I watched that video, and I said, oh, jeeper, did they mess that up? <laughs> I mean, but, but, you know, so that, okay, we just got to keep working at alignment. We got to be on the same page. We don't need to know a lot. We just got to know the same thing. And I think you nailed it, Doug, with the question, was just with the leaders first. Who are the, you know, having our leaders understand and align before the masses, and then not only just understanding and align, but where you as the, the main shepherd are modeling it, and then our leaders start to model it first. And we would, in the four chair language, I tell leaders, you've got to get to chair four first. Don't go out and preach a, a four-week four series on this. Get to chair four yourself and get your elders in your church there. Get your deacons in your church and take a year to do that. And in, in our student ministries, do the same thing with our adult uh, ministry team. Help our adults understand it and model for them and help them to be you know, chair three or chair four disciple makers first. And then we got a good infrastructure where we can, you know, we built a healthy framework where our students can start to grow and, and develop into that. I was going to say the, the disciple, discipleship versus disciple making conversation. Discipleship, yeah, how do we learn more? The idea of me imparting knowledge or information and, and we're figuring out things, learning things together. Disciple making has much more the implication of relationship and that this is lifelong and this is actually the continuation of learning as we do this together. So disciple, discipleship is just, in my mind, is often about information and more learning. The other is about how do we do life on life together. But even thinking of the app application, I was thinking, just as you're saying that, it just came to mind. I have, I think this is a four or five, the <laughs> iPhone. It keeps telling me to update the operating systems. And I'm like, I don't want to do it. Like, if I do, certain things won't work. And I'm just thinking of the analogy of, of, of what you're saying is, Sometimes we're afraid <laughs> because what happens if it doesn't work? What happens if we update and choose to go down this disciple-making pathway and people don't walk with us or track with us? And, and, you know, it's well, just, I think that's a, <clears throat> that's a great point to make, Calvin, because the reality is if you want to update your operating system or um, literally remove the old operating system and install a new operating system uh, because the old one's not working... It's got bugs, uh, it's crashed, uh, whatever. Um, there are going to be some apps in your ministry, some things that you're doing that do not work with the new operating system. They do not align. And um, there, there will be some, some leadership um, challenges that you will face with that. Because there are going to be some programs that are sacred cows within your ministry that someone started and someone paid for and someone loves and they're all over it and maybe others are in it with them. You're like, well, that just, you know, it, it doesn't fit with this, with the, with the operating system. And uh, you know, are you gonna are you gonna put that sacred cow on the altar and sacrifice it, right? And you got to make those tough leadership decisions. Um, you know, where have 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 you seen that, Joel? With uh, uh, I mean, you can tell. Are you, are leaders willing to die on that hill to make changes in the apps? 
the, the church ministries that we do. Uh, for instance, you know, our current church has a several ministries that I've questioned. Okay, we've got a quilting ministry. And if you've got a quilting ministry, I'm not cutting it or anything like that, but they're, they're funding this thing. And I'm like, what's our quilting? How is it helping people move from chair to chair to chair? How is it helping make disciple makers in our church? Not just that ministry, but any ministry that we're doing, men's ministry, women's ministry. And, and when, uh, when leadership is not willing to, you know, to say, okay, you know what, this is not helping make disciples, but the ladies who run it are dear ladies and we love them, so we're going to keep it in there. You know, they, then they haven't chosen to die on that hill for the sake of the new operating system or making disciples under the model of Jesus. So I've seen resistance to it because of specific things like like that in church-wide, church-wide ministry. Yeah. I mean, Dan, when you were talking about uh, alignment and assessment, I think one of the beautiful things about, you know, uh, understanding kind of that process of the four chairs is when you look at that as a process, then you can think from a standpoint of program, mm -hmm. right? And so what specifically are we doing both on a relational and also on a programmatic level <coughs> to target those who are in chair one? What specifically are we doing on a relational or programmatic level to target those who are in chair two? who are in chair three, who are in chair four. And I think if, if we would just, you know, line up four chairs on a piece of paper, divide four columns, and, okay, let's list out everything on this piece of paper that our ministry is doing. Everything that on a week-to-week -week basis, on a monthly basis, a quarterly <coughs> basis, an annual basis, and what's the primary purpose of that activity, that event, that program. Which of these four columns would I put it in? And I would think the vast majority of our ministries, you're going to see everything falling in the first and the second column. And probably for the vast majority, it's not even the first column, it's the second column. Um, you, you had a question? Or? Yeah, I did. Uh, when you mentioned the quilting ministry, my mind immediately went though to that if you have a disciple maker there, then they can influence and use that. No matter what your ministry, what your gift, what your interest is. Exactly. Well, that's where you can reap because right now it's it's gals get together who like to make quilts and they make quilts together and they've used them for great things. Like my wife is a nurse at a school for developmentally disabled kids. And our church has taken these quilts to kids in wheelchairs. So it's been a real blessing to them. But the question is, is it really helping anybody become a disciple maker? So we've told them, you know, right now there's not a primary purpose for it, really, for any of these things. It's a fellowship thing. So maybe it's a chair two thing. We said, well, how do you have friends that like to make quilts who are in chair one? Can we redirect the purpose of this ministry? So you're inv inviting your lost friends to help you make quilts. And while you're there making quilts, Somebody in your group is sharing their story, their face story. Well, we don't know how. Well, great. We'll help you get to chair three by equipping you how to share the gospel and share so you can use the quilting ministry to help people move. Plus, it's blessing these kids at the school. So it's, it's trying to re... We can repurpose these things, but it takes leadership to make that, that difficult decision to, to, to help that person realize it. 
Dan, I had a question just about, um, I was in your first session and uh, one of the things that you mentioned was kind of how when you first started with uh, trying to disciple kids as Jesus did it, was that there was a, almost a pruning of your ministry first where it decreased in size and then, and then it, you saw an increase. Um, can you speak a little bit to not really focusing a lot of energy on trying to steer the ship from the top down, but allowing the movement to speak for itself to help build the future strategy of the church rather than trying to have a lot of philosophical debates amongst leadership on what's the right way to do things and change ministries and thing like things like that? Would it be more fruitful to just start plowing away in your own ministry and, and allow God to use that? Absolutely. I, um, I would challenge all of you if, if you... There, there are two types of leadership. You've got uh, a position of authority and you have a position of influence. Um, I love working on a position of influence. At Southeast, I have a position of influence, but I have no authority. Um, when I was a youth pastor or led church, I have a position of authority. When you have authority, you, you do what needs to be done mm-hmm. under the submission to the Lordship of Christ. When you have influence, influence is only good when you're asked. So I would not get into fights with leadership about our purpose. I, I may buck a little bit some of the current thinking about this. But if you're, as a youth pastor, don't try to change your church. All it's going to do is make you bitter. All it's going to do is make you angry. All it's going to do is probably get you fired. (laughs) All it's going to do, it's just not going to solve any problems. Now, so you create, and this has happened, I've seen this. We ended up working with 25 denominations, training all their pastors. Why? Because we created movements of disciple makings in youth ministries and pastors came to us and said, how are you doing that in youth? Would you teach us? Now your authority goes up more because they've asked you to help them. How did this happen? The church I serve. I mean, that's how some I grew out of. I mean, we had several hundred kids reaching their friends. Other churches began to come and say, how are you doing that? Now I have, I can speak into it. But if I would have tried to tell them what to do, so I just highly put, I was, and the reason I learned that early on, because I was, for the nine years I was youth pastor, it was all part-time. Mm-hmm. I was going through Bible school and seminary. And so I learned early on in this discussion to do few things and do them well. Matter of fact, I only think there are four things you need to do. You need to do something to win the lost, something to build the believers, something to equip the workers, and something to send out proven multipliers. Do few things and do them well. But the danger of a conference like this, you come get this idea, this idea, this idea, and you've got 47 creative ideas. And where does it fit in your philosophy of disciple making? Mm -hmm. Do few things and do them well. And do make disciples under you, and then if they ask you, now you can speak into it, but then back up and let them do with it what they want. And sure the the research on the 87%. Yeah, my doctoral study, we, when I was really just learning it, I had no one to teach me. So I was, and I had to literally um, be willing to lose my job to stick to disciple making. So it was, it was good for me because 
um, I got fought on every level. Cause that, but that was years ago. You guys don't have to fight a lot of the battles. Because we were in a, you had to have Sunday school, you had to have Bible quizzing, and if you did that, you were a good youth group. And I there. wasn't, you know. <laughs> still still there, there. Yeah. All right. um, Hasn't changed. Uh, well, so I, I, I wrote papers on it. Uh, they liked it. It was okay for a while until, you know, one elder's kid was not on my ministry team. And they'd come back, well, we, who's paying your salary? And I had to defend it. Well, this is what Jesus did. I'm going to do it. I had to, I had to be willing to lose my job early on. And so that really rooted the value. So I had to defend it. Now, that was healthy for me because it cemented this training in my mind. I just learned. I fought a lot of battles, lost some, and fought some others. So they became convictions, not good ideas. So, but in... In that, when we began to train other churches, because they were coming to us, I, my doctoral work, I began to analyze a hundred churches, and roughly came down that said they were committed to making disciples like Jesus. And so we began to analyze those hundred <coughs> ministries. Uh, most of them were youth groups um, at the time, but there were a couple churchwide. And what we found was we, this thing we call the eighty-seven percent problem. Those you've been around Sun Life Club, but we went to them and says, "Okay, you're committed to making disciples like Jesus, absolutely." Are you sure you? Oh, we're 100% committed to it. Okay, that's your mission. Now let's analyze your structure to accomplish your mission. What kind of programs do you have? And they said, Well, we have a Sunday morning service, and this is a churchwide. Great. What's the purpose of? It? Well, what do you mean? What's the purpose? Well, who are you targeting? What you're trying to do? And they said, Well, you know. Uh, pastor preaches, we sing, uh, everybody comes and we worship the Lord. It's, I guess it's designed to help believers to grow. Sure, to grow. Great. What else do you have? You have Sunday school. Well, what's the primary purpose of that? Well, what do you mean primary purpose? <laughs> well, who's it targeted for and what you're trying to accomplish? Well, we're doing it because everybody else does it. No, that's not what I asked. What's your primary purpose? They struggle and say, well, you know, it's to help believers to grow in small groups. So we have, for you know, they didn't have that now metaphor that a chair too. What else do you have? Well, Wednesday night prayer meeting. What's the purpose of that? Well, you know, it's to get Christians together to help them grow. And and we went down program. I've, I've done this with churches that have 110 programs. I did it at Southeast. They had like 98 different ministries. What's the primary purpose? Who's it targeted for? And overwhelmingly, now Southeast is a very evangelistic church where I'm at. So Southeast was rare for most churches I've done it. We found in that original research that 87 of the 100 ministries that we evaluated who said they were committed to making disciples like Jesus had all their programs targeted to chair two people. Almost nothing designed specifically to win the lost. And almost nothing designed to equip the workers. Except they would train their people how to, you know, I always joke and say they're ushers to ush, they're deacons to deek, you know. They would train their few workers to do, you know, their church activities. Nothing biblical equipping like Doug talked about, how to be out in the harvest of when you're friends. All of the church programming was targeted for charity and people. Um, and then we wonder why we're not making disciples. Because to be a disciple in that model, you've got to be doing chair two stuff four nights a week. And we measure you're a good Christian if you're busy at church or in the youth group. And that is so unbiblical. I mean, we trained this line, and you, you know, the question you got me going here, but 
we trained it so many times, I, teaching the life of Christ, and I would have, I'd talk about how Jesus was a friend of sinners, and I asked the question, how many of you have non-Christian friends? Or how many of you have friends, or non-Christians, who call you their best friend? Because that's what was happening to Jesus. And, and I have people walk out and say, no, if you're a really good Christian, you stay away from the lost. Where do you find that in the Bible? But most church people are so into themselves, they don't know non-Christian. And so to walk like Jesus walks means we, they're doing nothing. We've got to help people be a friend of sinners in the world, but not of the world. And so that, your DNA changes. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. I answered a bunch of stuff there. But, uh, does that yeah, make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I would really try not to fix the church mm-hmm. unless you're the senior pastor of the church. Mm-hmm. Because you'll and only then, get frustrated. You've got to have some credibility. I mean, if you just come into a church, yeah. I mean, I planted a church, started a church, and that was easier, but we had people who were um, had, been, had been attenders of other churches or moved into our area, and they had church DNA, they'd already been discipled into a certain operating system and they would say, hey, they've got a, there's a pro-life march that they're doing. Can we announce that? I'm like, you know what? We are absolutely pro-life, but we're not going to be, you know, a a demonstration kind of church or be known what we're opposed to. Or other people say, hey, can we put out voter guides? You know what? We want people to be good citizens and to vote. But, you know, let's face it, the, the focus on the family voter guides, they're all Republicans that they're voting for. And if a Democrat who's in chair one and lost comes into our church and they see that, we've already put up an obstacle or a barrier for them to come to Christ. So we're not going to be that kind of church. Or, or they'd say, are we going to do these things? And that's where, I think Doug was asking before, it costs you because people will leave. People will, that's not the church for me. Well, that's fine because we're going to be about focusing on Jesus, making much of him and making disciples of him and making disciples like him. And we're going to have that tunnel vision and focus, and we're going to care for people, but in the, in the context and in the framework of helping people become disciples and, and using those opportunities to help them become and make more disciples. Now, I'm going to be real bold here, but I'm not, a, I'm not even on the board of Sun Life anymore. So they just let me come in because they're trying to humor the old we had an extra seat available. But I'll tell you that if you have a chair, four, four, four chairs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we had a, nothing to do with the sunlight. That's your name. Well, <laughs> but if you haven't figured it out already, I want you to see that Sun Life is all about a biblical philosophy of ministry. It's not about a curriculum. It's not about a program. It's not about how to do youth ministry. It's a biblical philosophy of ministry rooted in Jesus. And Jesus is a very deep well. I get very tired of teaching strategy. I've been doing this for 40-some years. I never tire of teaching Jesus. Every year I go deeper in Jesus. Every year I love Him more. It's a deep well. That's why I, you ought to saturate yourself with the Son's life. And Son life is great at helping you with that. Because if you get consumed with the real Jesus that walked on this earth, not... The resurrected Christ we follow, you heard me talk about the incarnate, you know, the pre-incarnate Christ, he's our model. But the, the incarnate Christ, you get consumed with walking as Jesus walked, doing what Jesus did, it'll change your life. You'll never be the same. So if you don't want to change, watch out. I was just with Craig Etheridge. I was just with some guys over in the speaker saying, 
And they went through <coughs> some of it, and, and God got a hold of their life. And Glenn Underhill was just telling me, damn, the first time I went and, and God spoke to me at your seminar, it changed my whole life. I've never been the same. So be careful. <laughs> but that's, I, I would just want you to hear that. I, I say it unapologetically because I'm not a part of it now. But it's a way of life, and just go deep in the real Jesus. Um, it changes everything about what you do and what you choose to not do and all that stuff. So I would say, for me, being in... Now, do I get paid now? Yes. Give me a, a sucker. <laughs> Double your salary. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that, for me, being in youth ministry 30-plus years, um, in, in an urban context, very difficult at times, the sun life, looking at the sun's life, looking at Jesus and seeing that as our model has actually kept me in it. Mm. And versus running from program to yeah. program, what do I need to do next? And rah, rah, and lights and, you know, like, I came into the church yesterday taking pictures of the building, <coughs> sending them back home to Canada because we got nothing like this where we are. And it's just like, wow, look at this. And my daughter is like, Dad, that's incredible. Basketball net inside the church and the cafe <laughs> and all that. And because it's just not who we are. So, so... It, it frees me up from trying to do this and trying to run program, even though we do this and we do program. But it just allows me to say, I want to make disciples the way Jesus did. And so it gives me a philosophy of ministry. It's kept me going. And the lifer youth guys um, that I get to rub shoulders with in Toronto and, and across Canada, most of them have stuck through it and, and are still in it. All, not all, but most would say, that they're rooted in the son's life, and that's helped them with a philosophy of ministry and just kept them going. Because I think it's liberating. That Do you understand how radical this stuff is, though? I mean, maybe some of you have been to Bible school or seminary. Most of you have taught at Bible school or seminary how to do what Paul did. I mean, think about, they're very few. Now, again, that most of us were taught how to do church based upon Paul. And Paul said, imitate me as I imitate who? Christ. I was just talking with a guy who teaches Christology at, at Liberty Seminary. And he says when he, he went through Sun Life uh, under Craig Rethridge and those guys about four or five years ago, he says his whole just changed his whole teaching of Jesus at seminary. Because he, he was just teaching, he wasn't teaching the incarnate Christ. He wasn't teaching the real. And he said most of what we teach, we train in Bible school and seminary how to do ministry like Paul. Versus how to go back to Jesus. Christology defines your missiology, which determines your ecclesiology. Sounds big words, don't it? Your understanding of Jesus determines why you do what you do, your missiology, and then determines how you do youth ministry. And that's why this is, this is radical. And, and unfortunately, in America, in most churches, this is radical. I, I show you letters. I've got whole organizations that write and say, Dan, you're off base. We it, we need to start with Paul, not start with Jesus. And the, the whole premise is we can't do what Jesus did here. We're good. He's God and we're not. And I could list you four or five names of organization. And I couldn't agree more intensely. Disagree. If, more. I disagree. Disagree more <laughs> intensely. And that was my whole premise on the humanity of Jesus. He was man as God intended him to be. When you get that, it's a game changer. When you get his humanity, the implications of his humanity... <coughs> Uh, if you're like me, it'll rock the old world. Doug mentioned the word implementation before. And I mean, I'm a pretty a practitioner in the student ministry world, church world, 
you know, church planting, senior pastor, and youth pastor, and all that. And that's been the biggest struggle is how do we implement this? Doug had brought that up. And some of the best help for me was having guys coach me who've been there before. I think of whitewater rafting. You don't want to go down a class four or class five without a guide in that boat who's been there before and done it. And so having some older, a little bit wiser youth ministry and, and church ministry coaches, <coughs> mentors that could help drive us down through there. So when we talk about training, coaching, mentoring, finding those guys who have implemented it before, they can help you avoid these the dangerous rocks and branches underwater and, uh, and help coach you through it. So as you implement, you just know that you don't have to do it alone. I'm just do a little plug. We, we do a disciple-making conference in Orlando in the wintertime. A great place to go in January, right, Calvin? Yeah, it's absolutely from Canada. Canada. Sure. But the biggest, we keep using the word together on there, that we're making disciples together where when we get in a, an atmosphere like that, I mean, that's one of the neat things from around here. You're talking to other people, learning from other people. But when we do our, our disciple-making conference, we're speaking that same con common language, and people are trying, okay, how, what's been successful for you to help people move from chair one to two to three to four or so forth? And just, just learning from other people who've done that before. That's helped me to implement both as a, as a church planner, senior pastor, youth pastor, I mean, some guys, have, they've saved me making stupid mistakes because they, when I had an idea of something to do, they would just warn me off from doing that. Uh, Dan, you had talked about, um, you know, influence versus authority and kind of starting on the ground floor from a, from a youth ministry standpoint, not trying to argue up and convince or change senior leadership in the church to move in the direction that you want to move in. Um, uh, from your experience, Joel, uh, Calvin, um, what are some of the challenges of trying to implement a disciple-making culture in your youth ministry when it's housed in a church that has a different operating system? <laughs> um, well, you just you just have to live it. You you just because you're 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 an alien. I mean, in in, a, in now that's an overstatement, isn't it? Um, because biblical <coughs> disciple making Jesus style, just study Jesus a little bit. Is the imparting of your life. That's the best definition I know of discipling in the New Testament. It's First Thessalonians two six. Parted my very life to you. It's life on life. It's relational. It's loving those kids, period. It's loving them as Christ loved them. It's just you care about people. So you invest them. You spend your life investing in people. And if you're the only one doing that and everybody else wants you to run programs, you've got to kind of do programs for a while until you can love someone so much that they start loving someone else so much, that they start loving so much, and all of a sudden you've got a cultural love in your youth group. And that's just stinking hard. The second church I went to is a Baptist church. I was told it was a great church, 400 people, great pastor. He's one of my dear friends, a godly man. But church 400, youth group of 30, and after being there two years, pouring my life into it. It shrunk to 20. 
because some kid didn't like the fact that we didn't do a lot of pizza parties and we didn't do a lot of roller skating parties. And I said, I don't have time for that. Um, that we didn't have officers. Now, you don't have, but we had officers. And I, I said, I just forgot to have elections. <laughs> because I didn't want officers, because the popular kid got elected. So I'm just not going to do that again. And I started a ministry team. And one kid got really ticked, who was the sharp, or who was the wittiest kid, um, the popular kid. I didn't put him on my ministry team. He later on went to become a student body president at Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> and the reason he did, because he got so ticked, he tried to get me out as a youth pastor, that he didn't get part of a ministry. And I just confronted him, Dave, you want to be? So it just, it was just gut-wrenching. And if the elders would have fired me two years into it, when they discussed if they should have, I probably would have accepted it, because I shrunk the youth group. But it was, it was, a, it was an intense, emotional, relational battle but to me, not to, to do what Jesus did, to walk as Jesus walked, to love people with you, I would be sinning if I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. To me, and again, this is an overstatement, but some of you maybe need me to say it again, but if you don't make disciples, you're sinning. That's really harsh, isn't it? No grace in that at all. <laughs> but, but, it, but that, if we're going to do what Jesus did, it means we give away our lives to people. We love them into the kingdom. And that, if you start doing that, and that's what I love about youth ministry. You start doing that with kids, they pick it up and they'll say, I mean, Tony's here. Tony's a good friend. And you know, isn't that true, Tony? You've been doing this for years. When you start loving kids, um, you may not be the hottest youth pastor in town. You may not have the biggest youth group. I was in the shadow of Bill Hybels at Willow Creek. And there are people in our church who wanted us to have lights and bells and whistles and all. And he was brilliant. Uh, Speaker, but we just grew it organically. It shrunk, and then we began to multiply. And um, you may not multiply that much, but is it worth it? Yes. Would I do the same thing over? Yes, because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to jump in. My my son's a youth pastor in Toronto, and uh, probably the largest church in Toronto, which is a little bit weird that he just turned twenty-two and. Uh, him and I talk about this all the time, mm-hmm. and the struggle and the pressure that he feels to, to run programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And last year at the D conference, God got a hold of his life. He says, Dad, all I want to do is make disciples. I don't know what that means, what that looks like yet. And so we're having this very real conversation all the time, this tension that he's feeling to, like, I feel called to make disciples, and, and yet I'm still, you know, they showed, they got 150 youth. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, one kid got on the wrong bus on a, on a youth outing, and a parent called him and reamed him out and yelled at him, hung up on him because they put the grade nine kid on the grade eight bus, and that was the whole deal. And he's like, is this what I do? Is this? And so just this challenge of expectations that people have, running program, and all I said to him is hardly. This is what God, this is what Jesus invites us to do, is make disciples. We're going to figure this out together, but you cannot deviate from this path. You cannot change the course that God has put you on. We'll figure out the programming piece. We'll, we'll figure out how to help parents parent well and, and support the youth ministry. And, and you know what he did? He's like, I think I need to just take my youth leaders, 15, 20 of them that I have, and begin to walk the four chairs <coughs> through them, 
and begin to get help them understand what we're doing. And he still took, he said, I want to start a ministry team of four or five students as well. And he's like, maybe if I just, and, and he said, I don't think I give him any answers. He just sort of talks it out loud and figures it out. You know, I'm going to work. And I think that that's a part of the reality of, of starting a disciple making this tension, but yet we know the course we need to take, and so let's stay the course, and we're going to see life change. And in this, we're not saying we're anti-program. Mm-hmm. I hear some say, oh, Absolutely. we don't believe in programs, we believe in disciples. There's no such thing. Your program is no program. you got a program. Mm-hmm. You just want the right programs. The programs, the, a program designed to help your kids win their friends of Christ. A program designed to help people grow. So we're not anti-program. Absolutely. And I just want to make it, he's not saying that. It's just we want the right activities that will move people through the process. Not just any activity because some other church did it. And we're not anti-church either. No. I was going to say, no. we wanted to have our... <laughs> well, that's great. I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> no. I mean, our youth ministries, <laughs> oh, my goodness. we want to teach it. We want to be responsive to Jesus, but also respectful to authority. And, I mean, for me as a young youth pastor, I'm just like, you know, let's go, you know, die on every hill. With So we want to, if they want us to run Sunday school... I'm like, okay, how can we repurpose that, or how do we make that fit in there? So it took several years, but then that became our primary chair yeah. to helping yeah. believers grow. Then we made our youth group primarily, you know, reach and loss students to be just over time. And then, um, oh, there's another thing I was going to say. Oh, just there's a tip. Here's another obstacle in, for youth ministry. There's a, um, a stereotypical youth pastor. You know, you're up at the crack of noon, you're doing pizza parties, you're, you know, that this is, the youth pastors are, you know, playing video games all the time, and if we want to be taken seriously by parents and by our our uh, elder board and senior pastor, we've got to chart a different pathway, and by having just a serious, we're trying to follow the model of Jesus, we're trying to produce disciple makers, we're trying to see Andrews, James, Johns, Peters, by the time they get done with, with high school with us, this is what we're going for. This is how we're trying to go for it. You'll get taken seriously at that point, and you'll break that stereotype of that, you know, the, the youth pastor just wants to play games and eat pizza. And then the worst thing in the world could happen to you because you're successful in youth ministry, you'll graduate to become a senior pastor, make more money, and stop doing this stuff. I joke about that, but it's true. The best strategy we found globally to change a nation is through doing what Jesus did. What did he do? He started with young people, the emerging generation. You are in the position of the most strategic ministry, I believe, in the church. Because you can change the next generation. You start working with 40 or 50-year-olds, and I'm past that. That's young to me now. I did 12 years of that. They have to unlearn 20 years. The way we change in GYI, changing the globe, is we go in, start youth groups. Within five years, we're popping out elders, trustees, deacons, businessmen that have been discipled. We're changing nations that way. Uh, and I think if Jesus came back, he'd do what he did the first time around. Start with 16, 17, 18 years old and pour into four years and then say, no, you guys do the rest. You are, so don't ever minimize being a youth pastor. Right. Never minimize that. Right. Our culture does, just ignore the culture. 
I love the story of someone who said to me one day, hey, when are you going to grow up and be a pastor, like a real pastor, when I was a youth in the local church, and I said, do you go to like a middle school teacher and just say, hey, when are you going to grow up and be a high school teacher or a, a university professor? You know, they're like, no, this is my calling, this is my career. And they, they never asked me after that. <laughs> Simply that, this is, it's okay, this is what we do, and, and, and celebrate that. I, I say to my son, I said, dude, you, have, you are incredibly positioned to have an incredible life of impacting people, and so never take that for granted. Enjoy every moment. This is an adventure that God has put you on, and you're going to do life on life with young people and youth leaders, and influence the church. I, I do believe that because we're we're inviting people to a lifelong followership of Jesus, and so the attraction must be Jesus, yeah. not the pizza party, not the lights, smoke and mirrors, and and Canadians like same. Sameness, smallness, and status quo. We don't like change. We want anything big. That's just who, that's just who we are. So, so smoke and mirrors after a while doesn't mean a whole lot. And so there's going to be a, a, probably a better show. I'm not a good enough speaker. I don't, you know, I'm not a great enough personality to, to hold people for four years, five years. It has to be Jesus. We put him at the forefront because and and, and, we want lifelong followership. That's, that's the key. And so that's why disciple making is absolutely essential because we want young people to grow into mature adults as they, as they follow Jesus and become healthier husbands and, and wives and spouses and great parents and then grandparents. And, yeah. Could you guys comment on, you know, when you talk about just living it out and, and being, how patient do youth guys need to be? You know, when are we going to, you know, um, you say give it two years be patient how long before you might see impact. It really it depends upon the church. That second church I went to, two, two and a half years, they were ready to fire me, and I would have left. It probably took four years to turn that ship around. And I had to graduate some kids out. Um, I think now I know enough, I probably could have discipled them into Jesus lifestyle, but I was so learning it myself, I just didn't know how to work with those spoiled church kids. I think now I know how a little bit. So sometimes it just takes a while. Um, it just, it, and sometimes it can go quick. The first ministry, it was really quick because they didn't have a youth group. They didn't, so anything I did was wonderful and I just loved them. They were Syrians. It was a Syrian church. They hug the, the ladies would come and hug you, and I, as a pig farmer from South Dakota, I didn't know what that was like to have a strange woman hugging me. But then I realized I loved it, and I, everybody was hugging everybody. It was just so it, it happened faster there because they were very relational as a church. So it really, yeah, I think it varies in every situation, um, and and some of you will try. You'll pour your life into it, and you'll get fired. Some of our best guys, I mean, I talked to guys through the years who really know some I've been doing, had built a strong, solid ministry, went to another church, and got fired. And got beat up. Rob Young, the guy who followed me, got beat up in a church because the church would not let him do it. He got too much, and it wasn't, you know, the whole church, it was like parents or kids or, you know, and, and you're gonna, some of you are going to experience those wounds. And that's part of God building in you to yeah. make you a better disciple maker, long arms plan. It's you know I think Jim, part of it's the foundation that you lay dependent. I mean if you lay a good solid foundation and take the time to do that early on, it can grow faster. It can I don't mean youth ministry growing faster, but 
developing uh, after the model of Jesus can happen quicker. Uh, if you rush the foundation, you know, it's almost like the soils where it can grow fast and then fall apart. So that depends. And then the church itself. My first church wasn't a disciple-making church. I was there six years. We experienced fruit at that church. I mean, there's still students of mine there that are in their 40s now, and they're leading worship. They're making disciples in the college and career there. One guy planted a church. He works in a machine shop, and he planted a church, a part-time pastor. So all these guys that were my first youth group. So we had a level of fruit there. My second church, a disciple-making church. In fact, um, the pastor who discipled me, he's and for really the first guy really mentored me in ministry. His wife's here. I got to see her a couple different times. They're up in northern Michigan now. But that church... Man, we were able to see fruitfulness at about four years, really humming. Seven years, much fruit, and by year 10, man, it was multiplying, and, and just people were doing things, and that allowed me one year to be the interim senior pastor at the church because we had so many people, you know, it just had become, you know, strong and healthy. But that, a lot of it was because the whole church was aligned in that direction to make disciples like Jesus. And you can, within <clears throat> within your first year or within two years, you can put programs in place to align yeah. with this disciple-making process. But remember, programs don't make disciples. Yeah. You know, So those programs in and of themselves are not going to produce that fruit. It has to be a relational disciple-making process. So those programs really are meant to cultivate, uh, encourage to stimulate disciple-making relationships. So when you do outreach and you're having your kids invite their lost friends, you're the youth pastor, you present the gospel, you have the, 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 the students, if you want to trust Christ, raise your hand, uh, come forward, you know, we'll have all our adult leaders pray with you, and if, you're, if that's your model, you're kind of cutting your students out of the discipling process of discipling their peers. They brought them, and then they're just turning it over to you, versus, uh, you know, you have students on stage, they're sharing their testimony, helping to present the gospel. Maybe you, maybe you do the message, but when you get to the end of it, you don't close the deal. You have them get together in groups of four or five in circles. You make sure you've got students you've trained to share the gospel, and they're in all of those groups, and they're walking through, and they're leading their peers to Christ. And then they're continuing to walk with them. Uh, strategically, you're changing your focus. It's not just the programs, but how are they facilitating the relationships, disciple-making relationships that you want to see happen. It took me seven years to learn this one thing, but I'll just say it in a couple sentences. When you get a ministry team, a few kids pop to chair three. Your number one goal, in my mind, is to help them succeed at seeing a friend come to Christ. When you think that way, you now are no longer uh, just a, uh, a youth pastor. You're an equipper. Because you say, if you've got a ministry team of 8, 10 kids, and you say, my goal is not to see 8 or 10 kids come to Christ this year. My goal is to see 8 or 10 of my students lead someone to Christ for the very first time. Now you mentally have made a shift to think like Jesus, because Jesus thought multiplication. Don't think growth, think multiplication. So everything you do is to help your students see a friend come to Christ. Now they become a spiritual parent, and they ask questions they never asked before. 
now you begin to see multiplication. It, it took me seven years. I'm dumber than most of you, but I could tell you the whole story. We don't have time here. But it took me seven years to learn that one little principle. But once I got it, I said, I am never going to give another invitation. I told the kids that in our youth group. Why? Because I don't want to lead anybody else to Christ. My goal is to help you lead your friend to Christ. And in the broader churches, we work with churches to help senior pastors equip their elder boards, because a lot of times elder boards are decision-making teams versus disciple-making teams, helping our elders get to chair forward there. You know, my goal this year is not to have you help us figure out the budget, but to have help you to lead people to Christ and help them to grow. And so it, that can be church-wide, too, with our elders, deacons, equipping and helping them. Changing, changing the paradigm, changing the mindset of you're not here to make this decisions, you're here to make disciples. Yeah. We've got just a couple minutes. Question. Um, so what would you guys say is a good uh, ratio of time? I mean, you're, we're in youth ministry, a lot of us. It's time spending discipling your students, and like you said, time spending discipling your leaders to disciple your students. Um, I think you're going to go through stages in your ministry. And at the beginning, you have to model it for your leaders first. They have to see you doing it. You can bring them in and then begin to equip them to do what you've been doing. So at the beginning, you're going to need to be much more personally engaged in discipling students so that you can model what that looks like for your leaders and for other students. you gotta, you got to set that pace. Um, but then uh, when that model is laid down, then you can begin to shift more of a focus toward uh, equipping, coaching, discipling your leaders and your ministry team for them to be uh, discipling and equipping others. So... You know, it all depends on kind of where you're at in that process. And the size of ministry, number of leaders, there's a lot of things that can really change. But I would, I would say this, too. It, it, it's valuable for you. There, I, I know some who have been in youth ministry, and their youth ministry grows, and it gets to a point where they're, they're now just focused on the leaders, and they're not focused on students anymore, and they're just letting their leaders do that. And I would say um, to always kind of keep your hand in that pot and always have some students Go back who, to you're, Jesus. who you're yeah. pouring into, who you're investing in um, because you're continuing to model it. The bigger Jesus ministry got, yeah, he went to 12 and he went to 3 and then his most love. But he went smaller, but he also went larger. So he never isolated himself from the crowds. He'd spend a whole day with crowds, but he did pour in a few. So, And if you isolate yourself as your ministry gets big, from the crowds or from the discipling the student on it, you, you ultimately will lose touch. Yeah. What is like the number one, you know, people come to trainings and they hear this, what's like the number one pitfall or mistake pastors or youth leaders, you know, they come to a conference like this, go back to their home church and try and implement it and it doesn't take off. What do you think the most common or things you've seen the most common mistakes are? I would say you go and back and try and try and put programs in place and get everyone else to make disciples and you're, you haven't owned it yet. You're not doing it yet yourself. Um, I would encourage you guys, if you can find a Sun Life trained guy or, that lives around you and just spend time with him and for a coach, 
say, help me think through some decisions, something that's outside, you know? Yeah. Or to try to do too much too fast. Dan said, do a few things and do them well. And that was real helpful for me almost 30 years ago, just to try to do a couple things. What's one significant thing this year for chair one? What's one significant thing for chair two? For So just a... You know, and then um, I try to do a, a three-day prayer retreat every year where I just, okay, Father, what are you telling me to do? This is your ministry. I'm your man. I was bought at a price. I'm not my own. What do you want me to do? I'm a steward over this thing. I want to steward this well. What are you telling us to do this year? And so I had, what's my key things we got to do for chair one, for three, for four, and then several goals for each over the next year, just try to listen to the Lord. And like Jim was saying, having a good mentor or someone to coach you through to help you avoid mistakes they've made and can help give some good insight that way. And like in your question, that would be a real good coaching question for someone to ask you questions about your ministry, what's going on there, what are the dynamics, how many students, what are your leaders like, what are their ages, you know, are they all female? Because that changes dynamics. So what do you so just to have someone that can help you coach and coach you through. Calvin, can you uh, can you pray for our, our group here? Sure. Yeah. Father, we are so grateful that we get to partner with you in what you are accomplishing in the world. Thank you that we are desirous of, of learning more of you, and even as Dan has encouraged us and, and us in this room to look at Jesus' life, go deeper in Jesus. And as we begin to do that, uh, process of making disciples who make disciples becomes that much easier, that much more important. So Father, um, give us the, the courage and the strength to, uh, to maybe start over with a new operating system moving forward, and that is having a DNA of disciple making in our ministries based upon the life of Christ. So give us strength, give us wisdom, and a tenacity to move forward your call in our lives, God, to, to make disciples and make disciples. Bless this group of individuals, and may we go in your power and your strength, and that we would know your joy each and every day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from the Sun Life track called Transforming the Culture of Youth Ministry at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.